Welcome to Fast Asleep. Whether you're here for just a good night's sleep, or maybe you want to hear an exceptional story, it's nice to have you with us. Now, if you haven't noticed yet, we love our female writers here at Fast Asleep. Moody and resonant is how Daphne du Maurier's work has been described. We are so excited to bring you one of her favorites in our next four episodes. Alfred Hitchcock felt similar excitement, I guess, because he made today's story into a classic movie. But does Hitchcock's work really represent du Maurier's story? I'd like it if you were the judge. So, push all those cares aside. Tuck in and really enjoy the birds. On December the 3rd, the wind changed overnight and it was winter. Until then, the autumn had been mellow, soft. The leaves had lingered on the trees, golden red, and the hedgerows were still green. The earth was rich where the plow had turned it. Nat Hawken, because of a wartime disability, had a pension and did not work full time at the farm. He worked three days a week and they gave him the lighter jobs, hedging, thatching, repairs to the farm buildings. Although he was married with children, his was a solitary disposition. He liked best to work alone. It pleased him when he was given a bank to build up or a gate to mend at the far end of the peninsula where the sea surrounded the farmland on either side. And then at midday, he would pause and eat the pasty that his wife had baked for him and sitting on the cliff's edge would watch the birds. Autumn was best for this, better than spring. In spring, the birds flew inland, purposeful, intent. They knew where they were bound. The rhythm and ritual of their life brooked no delay. In autumn, those that had not migrated overseas but remained to pass the winter were caught up in the same driving urge, but because migration was denied them, followed a pattern of their own. Great flocks of them came to the peninsula, restless, uneasy, spending themselves in motion now wheeling, circling in the sky, now settling to feed on the rich new turned soil. But even when they fed, it was as though they did so without hunger, without desire. Restlessness drove them to the skies again. Black and white, jackdaw and gull mingled in strange partnership, seeking some sort of liberation, never satisfied, never still. Flocks of starlings rustling like silk flew to fresh pasture, 
driven by the same necessity of movement, and the smaller birds, the finches and the larks, scattered from tree to hedge as if compelled. Nat watched them, and he watched the seabirds, too, down in the bay. They waited for the tide. They had more patience. Oyster catchers, red shank, sanderling, and curlew watched by the water's edge as the slow sea sucked at the shore and then withdrew, leaving the strip of seaweed bare and the shingle churned and the seabirds raced and ran along the beaches. Then that same impulse to flight seized upon them too, crying, whistling, calling. They skimmed the placid sea and left the shore. Make haste, make speed, hurry and be gone. Yet where and to what purpose? The restless urge of autumn, unsatisfying, sad, had put a spell on them and they must flock and wheel and cry. They must spill themselves of motion before winter came. Hmm, perhaps, thought Nat, munching his pasty by the cliff's edge. A message comes to the birds in autumn, like a warning. Winter is coming. Many of them perish. And like people who, apprehensive of death before their time, drive themselves to work or folly, the birds do. Likewise, the birds had been more restless than ever this fall of the year, the agitation more marked because the days were still. As the tractor traced its path up and down the western hills, the figure of the farmer silhouetted on the driving seat, the whole machine and the man upon it would be lost, lost momentarily in the great cloud of wheeling, crying birds. There were many more than usual. Nat was sure of this. Always in autumn they followed the plow, but not in great flocks like these, nor with such clamor. Nat remarked upon it when hedging was finished for the day. Yeah, said the farmer. There are more birds about than usual. I noticed it too. And daring, some of them, taking no notice of the tractor. One or two gulls came so close to my head this afternoon, I thought they'd knock my cap off. As it was, I could scarcely see what I was doing when they was overhead. And I had the sun in my eyes. You know, I have a notion. The weather will change. It'll be a hard winter. That's why the birds are restless. Nat, tramping home across the fields and down the lane to his cottage, saw the birds still flocking over the western hills in the last glow of the sun. No wind and the gray sea calm and full. Campion in bloom yet in the hedges and the air mild. Ah, the farmer was right, though. And it was... That night, the weather turned. Nat's bedroom faced east. 
He woke just after two and heard the wind in the chimney. Not the storm and bluster of a southwesterly gale bringing rain, but east wind, cold and dry. It sounded hollow in the chimney, and a loose slate rattled on the roof. Matt listened, and he could hear the sea roaring in the bay. Even the air in the small bedroom had turned chill. A draft came under the skirting of the door, blowing upon the bed. Nat drew the blanket round him, leaned closer to the back of his sleeping wife, and stayed wakeful, watchful, aware of misgiving without cause. Then he heard the tapping on the window. There was no creeper on the cottage walls to break loose and scratch upon the pane. He listened, and the tapping continued until, oh, irritated by the sound, Nat got out of bed and went to the window. He opened it, and as he did so, something brushed his hand, jabbing at his knuckles, grazing the skin. And then he saw the flutter of the wings, and it was gone over the roof behind the cottage. Huh. It was a bird. What kind of bird, he could not tell. The wind must have driven it to the shelter on the sill. He shut the window and went back to bed, but feeling his knuckles wet, put his mouth to the scratch. Why, the bird had drawn blood. Mm, frightened, he supposed, and bewildered. The bird seeking shelter had stabbed at him in the darkness. Once more, he settled himself to sleep. Presently, the tapping came again, this time more forceful, more insistent. And now his wife woke at the sound and turning in the bed said to him, Oh, see to the window, Nat, it's rattling. I've already seen to it, he told her. There's some bird there trying to get in. Can't you hear the wind? It's blowing from the east driving the birds to shelter. Oh, send them away, she said. I can't sleep with that noise. He went to the window for the second time, and now when he opened it, there was not one bird upon the sill, but half a dozen. They flew straight into his face, attacking him. He shouted, striking out at them with his arms, scattering them. Like the first one, they flew over the roof and disappeared. Well, quickly, he let the window fall and latched it. Did you hear that? He said. They went for me. Tried to peck my eyes. He stood by the window, peering into the darkness, and could see nothing. His wife, heavy with sleep, murmured from the bed. I'm not making it up he said, angry at her suggestion. I tell you, the birds were on the sill trying to get into the room. Suddenly, a frightened cry came from the room across the passage where the children slept. Oh, it's Jill, said his wife, roused at the sound, sitting up in bed. Oh, go to her and see what's the matter. Nat lit the candle, but when he opened the bedroom door to cross the passage, the draft 
blew out the flame. There came a second cry of terror, this time from both children, and stumbling into their room, he felt the beating of wings about him in the darkness. The window was wide open. Through it came the birds, hitting first the ceiling and the walls, then swerving in mid-flight, turning to the children in their beds. It's all right, I'm here, shouted Nat, and the children flung themselves, screaming upon him, while in the darkness the birds rose and dived and came for him again. What is it, Nat? What happened? His wife called from the further bedroom, and swiftly he pushed the children through the door to the passage and shut it upon them so that he was alone now in their bedroom with the birds. He seized a blanket from the nearest bed and using it as a weapon, flung it to the right and left about him in the air. He felt the thud of bodies, heard the fluttering of wings, but they were not yet defeated for again and again they returned to the assault, jabbing his hands, his head, the little stabbing beaks sharp as pointed forks. The blanket became a weapon of defense. He wound it about his head and then in greater darkness beat at the birds with his bare hands. He dared not stumble to the door and open it, lest in doing so the birds should follow him. How long he fought with them in the darkness he could not tell. But at last, the beating of the wings about him lessened and then withdrew. And through the density of the blanket, he was aware of light. He waited, listened. There was no sound, well, except the fretful crying of one of the children from the bedroom beyond. The fluttering, the whirring of the wings had ceased. He took the blanket from his head and stared about him. The cold gray morning light exposed the room. Dawn and the open window had called the living birds. The dead lay on the floor. Nat gazed at the little corpses shocked and horrified. They were all small birds, none of any size. There must have been 50 of them lying there upon the floor. There were robins, finches, sparrows, blue tits, larks, and bramblings. Birds that, by nature's law, kept to their own flock and their own territory, and now joining one with another in their urge for battle, had destroyed themselves against the bedroom walls, or in the strife, had been destroyed by him. Some had lost feathers in the fight. Others had blood, oh, his blood, 
upon their beaks. Second, Nat went to the window and stared out across his patch of garden to the fields. Well, it was bitter cold, and the ground had all the hard, black look of frost, not white frost to shine in the morning light, but the black frost that the east wind brings. The sea, fiercer now with the turning tide, white-capped and steep, broke harshly in the bay. Of the birds, there was no sign. Not a sparrow chattered in the hedge beyond the garden gate. No early missile thrush or blackbird pecked on the grass for worms. There was no sound at all but the east wind and the sea. Nat shut the window and the door of the small bedroom and went back across the passage to his own. His wife sat up in bed, one child asleep beside her, the smaller in her arms, his face bandaged. The curtains were tightly drawn across the window. The candles lit. Her face looked garish in the yellow light. She shook her head for silence. He's sleeping now, she whispered, but only just. Something must have cut him. There was blood at the corner of his eyes. Jill said it was the birds. She said she woke up and the birds were in the room. His wife looked up at Nat. Searching his face for confirmation, she looked terrified, bewildered, and he did not want her to know that he was also shaken, dazed almost by the events of the past few hours. There are birds in there, he said. Dead birds, nearly 50 of them. Robins, wrens, all the little birds from hereabouts. It's as though a, a madness seized them with the east wind. He sat down on the bed beside his wife and held her hand. It's the weather, he said. It must be that. It's the hard weather. They aren't the birds, maybe, from around here. They've been driven down from upcountry. But Nat, whispered his wife, it's only this night that the weather has turned. There's been no snow to drive them, and they, they can't be hungry yet. There's food for them out at those fields. Mm. It's the weather, repeated Nat. I tell you, it's, it's the weather. His face, too, was drawn and tired, like hers. They stared at one another for a while without speaking. Well, I'll go downstairs and make a cup of tea, he said. And the sight of the kitchen reassured him. The cups and saucers neatly stacked upon the dresser, the table and chairs, his wife's roll of knitting on her basket chair, and the children's toys in a corner cupboard. He knelt down, raked out the old embers, and relit the fire. The glowing sticks brought normality. The steaming kettle and the brown teapot, comfort and security. He drank his tea, carried a cup up to his wife, and then 
he washed in the scullery and, putting on his boots, opened the back door. The sky was hard and leaden, and the brown hills that had gleamed in the sun the day before looked dark and bare. The east wind, like a razor, stripped the trees, and the leaves, crackling and dry, shivered and scattered with the wind's blast. Nat stubbed the earth with his boot. It was frozen hard. He had never known a change so swift and sudden. Black winter had descended in a single night. The children were awake now. Jill was chattering upstairs and young Johnny crying once again. Nat heard his wife's voice soothing, comforting. Presently they came down. He had breakfast ready for them and the routine of the day began. Did you drive away the birds? Asked Jill, restored to calm because of the kitchen fire, because of the day, because of the breakfast. Oh yeah, they've all gone now, said Nat. It was the east wind that brought them in. Uh, they were frightened and lost and they, they just wanted shelter. They tried to peck us, said Jill. They went for Johnny's eyes. Well, fright made them do that said Nat. They didn't know where they were in that dark bedroom. Well, I hope they won't come again, said Jill. Perhaps if we put bread for them outside the window, they'll eat that and fly away. She finished her breakfast and then went for her coat and hood, her school books and her satchel. Nat said nothing, but his wife looked at him across the table. A silent message passed between them. I'll walk with her to the bus he said. I don't go to the farm today. And while the child was washing in the scullery, he said to his wife, now you keep all the windows closed and the doors too, just to be on the safe side. And I'll go to the farm and find out if they heard anything in the night. Then he walked with his small daughter up the lane she seemed to have forgotten her experience of the night before. She danced ahead of him, chasing the leaves, her face whipped with the cold and rosy under the pixie hood. Is it going to snow, Dad? She said. It's cold enough. He glanced up at the bleak sky. He felt the wind tear at his shoulders. No, he said. It's not going to snow. This is a black winter, not a white one. All the while, he searched the hedgerows for the birds, glanced over the top of them to the fields beyond, looked to the small wood above the farm where the rooks and jackdaws gathered. He saw none. The other children waited by the bus stop, muffled, hooded like Jill, the faces white and pinched with cold. Jill ran to them, waving. My dad says it won't snow she called. It's going to be a black winter. She said nothing of the birds. <laughs> oh, she began to push and struggle with another little girl. And then the bus came ambling up the hill. Nat saw her onto it and then turned and walked back toward the farm. It was not his day for work, but he wanted to satisfy himself that all was well. 
Jim, the cowman, was clattering in the yard. Boss around? asked Nat. Gone to market, said Jim. It's Tuesday, isn't it? He clumped off round the corner of a shed. He had no time for Nat. Nat was said to be superior. He read books and the like. Nat had forgotten it was Tuesday. This showed how the events of the preceding night had shaken him. He went to the back door of the farmhouse and heard Mrs. Trigg singing in the kitchen, the wireless making a background to her song. Are you there, Mrs.? called out Nat. She came to the door, beaming, broad, a good-tempered woman. Well, hello, Mr. Hawkin, she said. Can you tell me where this cold is coming from? Is it Russia? I've never seen such a change. And it's going on, the wireless says. Something to do with the Arctic Circle. Oh, we didn't turn on the wireless this morning, said Nat. Fact is, you know, we had trouble in the night. Oh, kitty's poorly. Uh, no. Hmm. He hardly knew how to explain it. Now in the daylight, the battle of the birds would sound absurd. He tried to tell Mrs. Trigg what had happened, but he could see from her eyes that she thought his story was the result of a nightmare. Oh, sure they were real birds, she said, smiling, with proper feathers and all, not the funny-shaped kind that the men see after closing hours on a Saturday night. <laughs> Mrs. Trigg, he said, there are 50 dead birds, robins, wrens, and such lying low on the floor of my children's bedroom. They went for me. They tried to go for young Johnny's eyes. Mrs. Trigg stared at him, doubtfully. Well, there now, she answered. I suppose the weather brought them. Once in the bedroom, they wouldn't know where they were to. Foreign birds, maybe, from that Arctic circle. No, said Nat. They were the birds you see about here every day. Huh? Funny thing, said Mrs. Trigg. No explaining it, really. You ought to write it up and ask the guardian. They'd have some answer for it. Well... I must be getting on. She nodded, smiled, and went back into her kitchen. Nat, dissatisfied, turned to the farm gate. Had it not been for those corpses on the bedroom floor, which he must now collect and bury somewhere, he would have considered the tale exaggeration too. Jim was standing by the gate. Had any trouble with the birds? asked Nat. Birds? What birds? Oh, we got them up our place last night. Scores of them came into the children's bedroom. Quite savage they were. Oh? It took time for anything to penetrate Jim's head. I, I never heard of birds acting savage, he said at length. They get tame, like, sometimes. I've seen him come to the windows for crumbs. These birds last night were not tame. No? Cold, maybe, hungry. You put out some crumbs? Jim was no more interested 
than Mrs. Trigg had been. It was, Nat thought, like air raids in the war. No one down this end of the country knew what the Plymouth folk had seen and suffered. You had to endure something yourself before it touched you. He walked back along the lane and crossed the stile to his cottage. He found his wife in the kitchen with young Johnny. Do you see anyone? she asked. Mrs. Trigg and Jim, he answered. I don't think they believe me. Anyway, nothing wrong up there. Well, you might take the birds away, she said. I daren't go into the room to make the beds until you do. I'm scared. Oh, no, no, no. Nothing to scare you now, said Nat. They're dead, aren't they? He went up with a sack and dropped the stiff bodies into it, one by one. And yes, there were 50 of them, all told. Just the ordinary common birds of the hedgerow. Nothing as large even as a thrush. It must have been fright that made them act the way they did. Blue tits, wrens, it was incredible to think of the power of their small beaks jabbing at his face and hands the night before. He took the sack out into the garden. Oh, and was faced now with a fresh problem. The ground was too hard to dig. It was frozen solid. Yet no snow had fallen. Nothing had happened in the past hours, but the coming of the east wind. It was unnatural, queer. The weather prophets must be right. The change was something connected with the Arctic Circle. The wind seemed to cut him to the bone as he stood there uncertainly, holding that sack. He could see the white-capped seas breaking down under in the bay. He decided to take the birds to the shore and bury them. When he reached the beach below, the headland could scarcely stand. He could scarcely stand. The force of the east wind was so strong, and it hurt to draw breath. His bare hands were blue. Never had he known such cold, not in all the bad winters he could remember. Well, it was low tide, he crunched his way over the shingle to the softer sand, and then, his back to the wind, he ground a pit in the sand with his heel, and he meant to drop the birds into it, but as he opened the sack, the force of the wind carried them. He meant to drop the birds right into that hole, but the wind lifted them as though in flight again. Oh, they were blown away from him along the beach. They were tossed like feathers, spread and scattered the bodies of the 50 frozen birds. Oh, there was something ugly in that sight. He did not like it. The dead birds were swept away from him by the wind. Well, the tide will take them when it turns, he said to himself. He looked out to the sea 
and watched the crested breakers combing green. They rose stiffly, curled, and broke again. And because it was ebb tide, the roar was distant, more remote, lacking the sound and thunder of the flood. Oh, and then he saw them. And that is where we will stop for this episode. Remember, if you need a little more, head back to our collection. We have so many wonderful works by so many authors. Good night.